Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. I want to begin this morning with a question. How many of us have read the story of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley? Yeah, kind of random, I know, but you'll, you'll understand in a second. How many of you have read Frankenstein by Mary Shelley? Yeah, okay, a couple. And you guys who haven't, it's a masterpiece. Like, it's a super good book. Now, it's fictional. Okay, so kids, what I'm about to say didn't really happen. But it's a story of a scientist whose name is Victor Frankenstein. And in the 1700s, he discovers the secret of life. And he spends a couple of years digging up dead people's bodies so that he can take their parts and put them together and so you know sew them together and and he's able to bring it to life okay he makes this monster in his image and i think of this story of frankenstein every time that i read this passage where paul talks about one body many parts because the monster is one body except he's a monster and and the monster is is has many parts which are sewn together from maybe dozens of, of dead people. He's one body, many parts, and yet he's a monster. And, and I think that's like, that's not what Paul had in mind. Uh, you know, something that's interesting is that uh, when, when scholars talk about Mary Shelley's book, they, des- they describe it as a warning. Like Mary Shelley wanted to warn the world, warn the culture about uh, the dangers of, of humanism because humanism tends to play God. And that's what Victor does. He embodies the spirit of humanism. It's like, we don't need faith. We can handle this ourselves. We just need science and reason. And it's, it dethroned God. And, and Mary Shelley was right in her warning. Because when humanism spread and, and took over the church, it made a monster in its own image. And, and it burned churches. And it, it destroyed art and Bibles. And, and statues of the saints were taken down. And they were replaced by statues of philosophers. And uh, and in Paris, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, it was renamed as the Temple of Reason. Well, they called this period the Enlightenment. And, and, you know, humanism won. It it created a monster. And today, that's why in, in lots of places in Europe, most places in Europe, perhaps, churches are museums. They're museums. And I think that there's a warning in here for us, too, in this story. But it's not about humanism so much. I think the greater danger facing us is consumerism. Now, consumerism is something, it's something we've talked a little bit about, but it maybe requires a bit of definition. So one author and pastor's name is Sky Jitani. He describes consumerism this way, consumer Christianity this way. He says, when we approach Christianity as consumers, rather than seeing it as a comp- rather than seeing our faith as a comprehensive way of life, an interpretive set of beliefs and values, Christianity becomes just one more brand we consume along with Gap, Apple, and Starbucks to express identity. And the demotion of Jesus Christ from Lord to label means to live as a Christian no longer carries an expectation of obedience and good works, but rather the perpetual consumption of Christian merchandise and experiences. Do you hear that? The demotion of Jesus Christ from Lord to label. <laughs> what I'm suggesting here is that if consumerism takes over the church, then it's going to do just the same, as, same thing that humanism did, and it's going to create a monster. Now, suppose it did. 
Okay, suppose it did. What might that monster look like? What might it do? Maybe we would make some of our teachers and leaders into celebrities to adore. Maybe we would expect perfection from them. Um, maybe, maybe we would cheer each other on in our sin and kind of turn a blind eye to it. Maybe we would refuse to settle the disputes between each other, but we would you know, maybe try to get rich off of one another and, and take each other to court, you know? Maybe we might like sneak off after church and score another free meal at the temple up on the mountain. Or maybe some of us might hog all the food and the wine during the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So, like, is this familiar to you? And so my point is that consumer Christianity isn't new. It's as old as Christianity itself, and it's alive and well in Corinth. And that's why Paul wrote this. Now, there's a a few different approaches we could take this passage. It comes up a lot in debates about the gift of tongues and prophecy and and stuff like that. And it's not that that's unimportant. If you have, in fact, if you have questions about it, I'd encourage you to, you know, text them in. I just don't think that that's Paul's point here. Because it seems to me Paul knows that consumerism is creating a monster in Corinth and it has to be stopped. Everything depends on it. And in in this passage, Paul is going to zero in on four parts of the monster. And so my aim this morning is to name the four parts of the monster and to show how the Holy Spirit has equipped the church to push back. Okay, so I'm going to name the four parts of the monster and then I'm going to close by sharing a gift. Okay, so four parts of the monster and one gift. So the first part of the monster is this. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. Paul says at the beginning here, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So Paul's saying, like, when you were pagans, before you knew Jesus, you would bounce around from one God to another whenever whenever it suited you, and every one of them was a mute idol. Well, Jesus is different. He's not mute. He's, He's not just some statue on a shelf somewhere. This God speaks. And he offers a, a, a test to see if it's God's spirit that's, that is actually speaking. He says in verse 3, if you can say that Jesus is Lord, that's totally the spirit speaking through you. On the other hand, if you curse Jesus, if you disrespect him, that's not the spirit. But there's another problem I see. And I realized this when I, when I saw that Paul is, is addressing what's said, but he doesn't address what is sometimes left unsaid. And the thing about consumer Christianity is we don't normally run around saying, Jesus be cursed. Like, people don't do that. The, the, I think the, the issue is more that consumer Christians just don't have anything to say about Jesus, like good or bad. And, and we're silent. We, we blend in and we go about our, our busy, you know, middle class, self-important lives. That's consumer Christianity. And so Paul's like, speaking truth, yes, the Spirit is in that. But speaking blasphemy, no, the Spirit is not in that. And speaking nothing, no, the Spirit's not in that. And, and, and I think that that's, a, that's kind of a warning for us. If consumerism takes over, we might turn back to our nice, comfortable idols and, and blend in and, and look just like everybody else. And we wouldn't even know that there's idolatry going on. 
And, and that's why what we are doing here this morning is so important. When we gather here each week, one of the things that happens is that we declare through song and through prayer and through you know the explanation of God's word and by gathering at the table, we declare that Jesus is Lord. Okay? And that is a massive blow to consumer Christianity. It's a massive blow to consumer Christianity. The second part of the monster is pride. Okay? The first part is idolatry. The second is pride. And consumerism doesn't work without it. Okay? Consumer, it doesn't work without it. And, and in Christian community, pride is deadly. It's deadly. Pride is why some people expect special treatment. It's why I might act like my role matters more than, than your role does. It, or, or my schedule matters more than your schedule. Or my kids matter more than your kids. Or my suffering matters more than your suffering. Or my opinion matters more than your opinion. Or my gifts matter more than your gifts. Like, it's all pride. And Paul wants them to know, you guys, you're taking credit for God's work. Yep, you're all very special. Each of you is very important. You have special gifts, but it's the Spirit who distributes them. And he does so just as he determines. So what are you going to boast about? What are you going to compete over when everything that you are and everything that you have comes from God? Like you didn't choose it. You didn't choose your gift. God's spirit decided. He gave it to you. He distributed it. And so, so you know, let, let's check our pride for a minute here. The other problem here I think I see with, with pride is that your gifts aren't actually for you. Okay, they're for the church. And that's why Paul says in verse 7, the manifestation of the spirit is given, for what reason? For the common good given for the common good. And so he starts this list in verse 8. Like all your wisdom and your knowledge, your faith, your healing, your gift of miracles, your gift of prophecy, your gift of discernment and tongues and interpretation. These things are not superpowers that God gave you so that you could, you know, impress other people and look really great on your own. These are given for the common good. And so the danger is that consumerism is going to remake the church in its image uh, as you know, a bunch of little consumers who gather and take pride in what God has given us when it's really for the benefit of the, of the whole, for the common good. And, and Paul offers a different picture. Paul wants us to know God has made the church in his image. Back, backing up to verse 4, Paul wants us to know it's the same spirit who's at work in all of these things. Verse 5, it's the same Lord Jesus. It's the same God and Father and so there is, there is one God who is three, and the, those three are one. And you know what? The church is modeled after that. The church is modeled after the Trinity. And so there's unity and there is diversity because that's who God is. God is one and God is many at the same time. God is, God is Trinity. And that, is a, that picture is a huge blow to consumerism. Well, the third part of the monster in, in Corinth is greed, okay? We've talked about idolatry. We've talked about pride because this is related to pride, but greed is not exactly the same thing as pride. Greed says, oh, I see something I want, I should have it. Nobody should have the right to tell me what I can and can't have. I want what I want and I'm not going to settle. No compromise. Treat yourself. So why, why should I have one? Why should I settle for one if I can have two or five or ten? Why would I settle for the compact or the midsize when I can afford the biggest one? Why, why should I settle to be part of a community and be interdependent and rely on one another 
Why should I want to be part of a body if I can, you know, do all the things and do all the jobs and accumulate and gather all the glory and all the attention and all the importance for myself? Why would I be content to serve on a team when I can be independent? It seems to me what's underneath all of those is, is greed. Greed doesn't care who it insults in the process. It doesn't care who gets stepped on or hurt in the process. It doesn't care about justice. It doesn't care about equality. And in a Christian community, greed is deadly. And that's why Paul says that it's the Spirit himself who has baptized us or initiated us or or claimed us or gathered us in order to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free. In verse 14, Paul says that the body is not made up of one part, but of many parts. Like, you can't have all the gifts. Like, you can't be everything. You can't be every part and do every job. That's not how this works. The body needs feet and hands. And the body needs eyes and ears. And a body needs a head and it needs a nose so that it can smell. And it needs, it actually needs to have private parts too. You know, the parts that are covered up by a bathing suit. And so you can't say to some parts, why don't you just sit this out? You don't, we don't need you. Uh, I'm going to take care of it myself. And then I'll know that it gets done right. Paul is like, no, every part matters. Every part matters, even the sensitive parts. Every part matters. And so, but greed doesn't care about that. Greed wants more. It wants to do more. It wants to be more, even if that comes at the cost of the other parts. And Paul's like, every part matters equally. There should be no divisions in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. And it seems to me that's like the opposite of greed. Now, maybe you've seen how it looks in a body when the parts don't cooperate or work together well. I have a sister who has a condition called multiple sclerosis. And so far, her, um, her MS is pretty mild. But for many other people, MS causes major difficulties and major communication breakdown between your brain and the parts of your body. And so you can lose your vision and you can lose your speech you can lose your ability to walk. Because like imagine, imagine you went to, to move your foot, and, but a hand moves instead. Imagine you try to smile at somebody and instead you shake your head. Well, that's what happens when the parts aren't one. And that's what it is when consumerism takes over a Christian community. Every part does its own thing. The parts become greedy and try to do and be everything. And there's no unity. Unity is so important for Paul that the word one appears more than at least 18 times in this passage that I can find. Oneness, unity, this means no divisions. No divisions. It means, verse 26, it means if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. That's what oneness means. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. That's oneness. That's unity. Okay, And that is a huge blow to consumerism. Well, the fourth part of the monster Paul addresses here in Corinth is laziness. Laziness is, laziness expects and assumes that somebody else is going to do the work. That if something needs to get done, somebody else will take care of it. Okay. And maybe you've seen this in your family structure, depending on what roles the different people had. Maybe you've seen this in your neighborhood uh, with the different community leaders there are. Maybe you've seen this in the city or Laziness relates to others with a sense of entitlement and, and a certain level of, of privilege. 
And just like the other parts that we've been talking about, laziness is especially deadly in a Christian community. Okay? In a Christian community, laziness is deadly. Now, laziness is why some of you, you tried something once, you took a risk, you tried something, and maybe it didn't go the way that you hoped it would, okay? And lots of people came along after, and they offered their criticism, and they offered their complaints. Sometimes maybe they even offered their complaints behind your back, long after the fact, but not before when it would have been useful, and not before when you had asked for help and input. Some of you have experienced that. Well, that was their laziness. Laziness is why in in some Christian circles, we've just become kind of accustomed to this certain level, it's acceptable level of mediocrity. You know, like I know leaders who were called when they, when they felt God calling them into ministry, they, there was a, there was passion. There was a desire to, for excellence and to kind of pour themselves out for God. And, and I, and I know a lot of them who just really can't wait for retirement. Sorry. This, this is this is why laziness is why sometimes you find that the last people to arrive are the first ones who want to leave. And you know, in all of these things, the thing that we miss is we don't realize how vital each person actually is. Each person has a vital part to play. So think of it this way, okay? I want you to imagine you go to a rock concert in order to catch your favorite guitarist. The best guitarist in the world is up there. It's Prince. In case you didn't know it, the best guitarist ever was actually Prince. May he rest in peace. But as you're, as you're listening to him play, you notice that the low notes are off. There's something wrong, okay? And you look, in, you look really carefully, and you notice that his guitar is missing the low E string. You're like, what is that? Now, what if Prince said, yeah, I know that I'm missing the E string, but it's not an accident. It's just too much trouble. I just can't be bothered to tune that E string and and keep it in tune. It's just too much trouble. Now, Prince can do more with the other five strings than I can do with all six. But I think that we would say, Prince, please, please replace the E. It is so worth it if you can get all of the parts, all of the strings to work together. Or imagine if you go to like a ballet and you go to take in the, the Nutcracker at Christmas time, okay? And you realize that the prima ballerina that you went there to see... She's not there. She's not dancing after all. You know where she is? She's in the front row in jogging pants and in a hoodie. And you're like, what is going on? I thought she was supposed to dance tonight. Well, what if she said, hey, have you ever tried to tie ballet slippers? Like, it is not easy. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. Now, it's not like the show is ruined without her. But I think, yeah, I think we would go, please don't deprive the world of your gifts over this, what you can do is so beautiful and it is so worth the effort of tying up your, your slippers. And that's why from here, Paul goes into a list of a whole bunch of roles uh, and ministries that some people might think are more or less important, but all of which are vital to the health of the body of Christ. He, said, he talks about how there should be apostles. You know, apostles are the people who can walk into a space and, there's, and, and see what, what should happen, okay? They're like visionaries. And, and, and the body needs prophets who will get in the faces of, of corrupt people and say, no, thus says the Lord. 
And the church needs teachers who can take complex ideas and truths and make them click in our minds. And the body needs people to do miracles where nobody expects. And and, and the church needs people to blow our minds by healing the sick and speaking for God in other languages and interpreting those messages. And certainly those are not all of the spiritual gifts. For what it's worth, some of you might ask, I actually see no evidence in this passage or in any other that the gifts are going to cease. I mean, I understand the argument. The argument goes that because in our culture, we have heard the gospel, we have the scriptures, the church no longer requires the Holy Spirit to give gifts like tongues and prophecy and healing, etc. It just seems to me that is a pretty culturally narrow view. It just seems to me like more consumerism, actually. Sorry. But I think Paul's point is, you guys, the work, this mission, this is important. It matters. It is so worth the effort. And it is so worth each of you getting your hands dirty. We need you. Don't assume somebody else is going to come along. Somebody else did come along. You're here. You're in your house. You're in your neighborhood. You are in your workplace. You are needed for the work. We, we can't be lazy. We can't wait and hope somebody else is going to come along. There's a mission. Now come back with me for a minute to the story of Frankenstein here. About halfway through the story, the creature begs Victor Frankenstein to have mercy and, and to create a, a mate for him so he won't be alone. And Victor agrees and he puts the time into creating a female. And, and the original, the male, is, is watching and, and making sure that he does it. And as he watches, just before Victor Frankenstein brings the female creature to life, you know what happens? Victor changes his mind and he dest- he destroys the female and the original creature is just in anguish and misery and he swears revenge. He swears revenge against Frankenstein. Here's what he says. He says, I will revenge my injuries. If I cannot inspire love, I will cause fear and chiefly towards you, my arch enemy, my creator, do I swear inextinguishable hatred. Have a care. I will work at your destruction, nor will I finish until I desolate your heart. And now, if you've read the story, you you know that that's exactly what happens. When Victor doesn't give the creature what he asked for, the creature turns on the creator. See where I'm going with this? Here's where here's why this matters. Remember what we said before: Frankenstein is a warning. Okay, humanism remade the church in its image and eventually, basically, kicked God out of Europe. So that not long after, the psychologist Friedrich Nietzsche said uh, that God is dead. Well, this is what he meant. Now, why would we spend so much time talking about it? Because there's a warning in here for us. But the warning isn't about humanism. Replace humanism with consumerism for a minute. Like, what will happen if consumerism controls the church in this culture like humanism did in Europe? What's going to happen if consumerism remakes the church in its image? What sort of monster is going to be unleashed? What will its idols do? What will its pride and its greed and its laziness do to the church? Or are we just going to say it's, it's too late? I don't think it is. I, I, I don't believe that it's too late. And I know how much idolatry and how much pride and how much greed and how much laziness there are in my own heart. And if I can see that much of it in my own heart, man, multiply that times the Christians and the churches in this culture. And I see, I see a monster. I see the potential, at least, for a monster. But then I look at this chapter and and... And Paul sees a monster in Corinth and he 
corrects them, he reminds them and, and us what the church is, what the church is for. And so even if there are some churches in this culture that are sort of lost in Christian consumerism, even if there are some Christian leaders or bloggers or people on social media who, are, who seem to have been lost to Christian consumerism, the church, with a large C, the church will never be. This monster, the monster is going to be stopped. The only question is whether it's going to be the church here in our culture or somewhere else that God uses to stop it. Now, here's how I know. You remember the Apostles' Creed? The Apostles' Creed ends with, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, right before it says on the same level, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Listen, no corporation came up with the idea of the church. Like, no board of directors thought this thing up. You know what I'm saying? Like, it is God's idea. God made the church in his image. Beautiful, holy, redeemed, and new. And God did that. And you're part of it. And we are one, and we are many. There is unity, and there is diversity. And God did that. And you're part of it. And, and God has arranged us together as a living body with many, many parts. And you are one of them. God did that. And God knit the parts together so that even though we have diversity and uniqueness and unique gifts, each of them combine and serve the common good. And God gives each part, each of you has equal value and each equal dignity so that each of you is needed. Each of you matters. Do you know that? Each of you matters. And God did that. God did that. And this is what Jesus died for, okay? This is what Jesus died for. This is how we know it's going to work. One of the places that, this, that talks about this is in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, I really like how Eugene Peterson captures it in the message translation. He says, The one who climbed down is the one who climbed back up to the highest heaven. He hands out gifts above and below, filled heaven with his gifts, filled earth with his gifts. He handed out gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, to train Christians in skilled servant work, working within Christ's body, the church, until we're all moving rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful in response to God's Son, fully mature adults, fully developed and, and within and without, fully alive like Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Like this monster will be defeated. There is no room in Christ's work for the monster of consumerism. Okay? So spoiler alert, there is no future for consumerism in the church. It will be destroyed. Sooner or later, it's going to be destroyed. But the church will live forever. You and I will live forever members of Christ's church. And I wonder, do you know where you fit in that body? Do you know your place in that picture? One of my greatest dreams and hopes for, for each of us is that we would know our unique role and part and, and be able to serve in it. I just think there's so much freedom in knowing where you fit in. And I, I mentioned earlier that I would, I would share with a gift. And so here it is. And with this, I close. This is, this is my gift to you, okay? How many of you have ever done a spiritual gift test? It's where you answer questions and then based on your answers, it tells you 
great, congratulations, you've got the gift of tongues or teaching or serving or something like that. Uh, well, this one's different. So years ago, I came across a tool made by Rick Warren. He called it, it was called the SHAPE test. It's an acronym. And, and I liked it so much that I stole it and I adapted it and I expanded it and I did a bunch of study. And as far as I know, this is the most comprehensive list of biblical spiritual gifts that I know of. And I found as many as 45, 46 gifts. Okay. And that's where it begins with the spiritual gift. The next section, the H is heart. And this is about the, the people and the causes that you are passionate about. The A is for abilities and aptitudes. The, the P is for your personality. And for this tool uses a combination of the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram, because I know we've got some Enneagram fans among us. And then the E is for experiences, your experiences. This is where you, you're going to share about some of the people and events that have shaped you. And at the end, there's a place for you to bring it all together. And what I would love to see happen is maybe you work this through and maybe you share it with your huddle and they can speak some, some you know, truth to you and, and affirm some of the things that you've seen as you've done your, your shape uh, inventory. Or I would love to maybe sit down with you or Zoom with you. And as you've worked through your shape, maybe we could talk about it, you and I, and we can see what might God be preparing you for? What God might want to unleash in you and where he might want to send you or where, where he might want to put you or use you in His in the mission of this body. And if you would, if you would become more confident in the ways that you serve in these places, you know, for me, that would just be such a beautiful, such a beautiful final blow to consumerism. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.